podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Uh, grab your Bibles, grab your Bibles, everybody grab, or your phones and your notebooks. And Dr. Chris, I want to have you come on up right now. Um, man, the Lord has sent us a gift in Dr. Chris and Julie Green, and I am so deeply honored that he has established something beyond just kind of a formal, you know, guest speaker rotation. Like, these are our friends and when, we, when Christy and I, we have the just incredible privilege of spending some time with these guys. We feel safe with them. They end up usually pastoring us and prophesying into our lives, giving us wisdom and counsel. And I'm just here to tell you as a pastor of this family, man, this is a safe voice. And this is someone who has been sent to us to help us as God forms his family here in this house. Would you help me welcoming Dr. Chris Green? Love you, man. Good morning. morning. It's good to be here again with friends and family and to be friends, I hope. No former friends, but friends who will be friends. A few years ago, I I spoke at a church and after the sermon was over, I went down to sit in my pew and the pastor leaned over to me and said, you seem really angry. And it took me by surprise because I wasn't at all angry. And I realized later later in the day, I had a headache that day. And I was probably scowling all the way through all of that. And that got interpreted as as anger. So if you sense that I'm angry today, I have a headache. That's all that's going on. I'm I'm not in any way angry. I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad to be here for all kinds of reasons. One, I'm glad that my wife was able to travel with me. I'm glad to be with with friends. I'm glad to be with family. I'm glad to be away from Florida in the summer. <laughs> it's so bad. Like, it's so bad. You, you tried to warn me, Jonathan, and I did, not, I did not believe you. Although, I must say, this year, so this time last year, we, we just moved to Florida. And some friends opened up their house to us, and they opened up their house to us just as their air conditioning collapsed. So, yeah, right. So don't say I don't know anything about suffering. Obviously, I do. <laughs> Obviously, I do. This year we do have a house with, with air conditioning, that's good. But I'd still rather be here than, than there. All right, so this is one of those sermons that's not really well put together. It's not really a sermon, it's a, we'll call it a talk. And if it were a homiletics class, you would probably give me a low grade. I made a C in speech, by the way, in college. <laughs> Didn't bode well for my career, but... Um, I, I take it as a badge of honor now. <laughs> I skipped the homiletics class, which is obvious, because look what I'm doing this morning. I'm not giving a sermon. I'm just I'm going to talk. I, usually what happens to me is I prepare by reading the texts that are assigned for the, the coming Sunday, and then a, a bunch of bees start swarming around in my head, and my hope is by the time I get up on Sunday, there's some honey. <laughs> And, and if not honey, at least some stings. I don't know if there are either stings or honey this, this Sunday, like, but there is a lot of buzzing in my head. These texts are going to seem unrelated until the very end. And then I think 
I think, if we make it to the end, they will be, you'll see that they are, they are related. So let's start in Galatians chapter 5. Why don't you do this for me? If, if at some point in the sermon you taste some honey, just yell honey out for me. <laughs> and if you feel a little bite, just yell out sting, right? <laughs> and we'll, I'll try to keep a running tally. We want more honey than bites by the end. That's what we're after. I'm not sure that's appropriate, but we're going to do it. It's, it's almost July. We're, on, we're stripping things down. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. You've been called to freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love become slaves to one another. Now this is typical Paul. At first blush, it doesn't seem like he's saying much. But the longer you look at it, the more you realize that it's almost impossible to understand what he does mean. You've been called to freedom, so be slaves. You've been called to freedom, so be slaves, and be slaves to one another. Don't indulge yourself in your freedom. Indulge the other. In another letter, in Philippians, Paul says to the Philippians, consider others better than yourselves. That's the spirit of Christ. Consider others better than yourselves. So he says, don't indulge yourselves and love one another by being slaves to one another. That's your freedom. For the whole law is summed up in a single command. Again, this is a striking statement by Paul because Jesus' teaching was that there, the law hangs on two words. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says on this, on these two words, hang all the law and the prophet. And Paul says, well, Jesus, we really could go one step further and say the whole law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Because I think the point of it is you can talk about loving God. It's meaningless until you love your neighbor. When you say you love God and you don't love your neighbor, it's yourself you love. It's your idea of God that you love. It's the way God makes you feel that you love. Loving your neighbor is the evidence, the, the manifestation that the love that is in you is in fact God's love. And so Paul says, be free, be free by serving one another. Do not indulge yourselves. Fulfill the law by loving one another. For the whole law is summed up in that single command. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. One of the things I love about, about Paul, and, and all, almost all, if not all of Scripture, is how realistic it is about what it means for human beings to live together. And it is, we're called to this, this way of life, this way of serving and loving one another that embodies the spirit of Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, you and I are still broken, confused, hurt people, and we hurt one another. And you can't be in any community very long without being both hurt by others and hurting others. We're all Saul to somebody else's David. We're throwing javelins at them. And we're all David to someone else's, ja someone else's Saul. They're throwing javelins at us. And in this room, if we knew the full story, there are a lot of you who are uncomfortable that there are other people here this morning you wish weren't here. 
And guess what? There are people who wish you weren't here this morning. <laughs> there are people who wish I wasn't here this morning. <laughs> Beasting, right, right. There's our first sting, right? God wants you to be here. There's some honey. You put the honey on the stings. That's what, that's what you do, right? But the... I think the crucial point that Paul is making here is, listen, this is what you're called to. You're called to freedom and you're called to serve one another. But make sure you don't kill each other before you get there. Right? Don't, don't destroy each other before you get there. And, and that's really at the heart of it. That's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to, to stay together without killing one another until God can make us like Christ. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Don't consume each other. So remember that language of consumption. Now, come back to the gospel text for the day, which is Luke 9. Luke nine fifty one. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, remember that phrasing when we turn to 2 Kings. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen to him there, and he needs a place to stay the night. And so he sends some of his disciples ahead. They come to this small village in Samaria, and when they do, they are rejected. They did not receive him. So if you've, if you've been around church or you've read scripture, read the gospels, you know that there is, there's a lot of contention between Jews and Samaritans. And that's what's manifesting here. What's manifesting is this distaste for the immigrant and this distaste for people who break the border. And here, come Jesus, here comes Jesus as the one breaking the border and they don't want any part of it. They don't want any part of him. And Jesus' disciples, knowing their story well and knowing how important what they're doing is, they, they respond heatedly to the way that they've been treated. And this is, this is what they say to Jesus. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, in some ways, this is, this is absurd, right? And, and I think it can hit us in a way that just seems silly. Like, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> they didn't want to welcome you, and now you want to burn their cities to the ground? But the fact is, this story of Jesus coming through Samaria to Jerusalem is an echo of the story of Elijah and Elisha that we're about to read. And Elijah does this very thing. He calls down fire from heaven and consumes people. That's kind of what he's known for. So when James and John say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these people? They're thinking of Elijah, but they're also thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. I know this is controversial and we don't have time to get into it. Come tonight and we'll talk about it after service. But the reason scripture says Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed is because they were inhospitable. They did not receive the stranger and God destroyed them for it. And 
So James and John not only know the story of Elijah and the prophet who calls down fire to destroy, he also, they also know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God sends fire to destroy this city because these people would not allow strangers into the city. So what they're saying is, this is Sodom and Gomorrah. These people are wicked. They will not make room for us. They won't make room for us. And Jesus, they won't make room for you. And Jesus says, no. And then in another gospel's account of the same text, of the same story, it says, you don't know what spirit you're of. Just because it's biblical doesn't mean it's godly. Just because godly people have done it doesn't mean it's godly. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean God wants that. And just because godly people in the Bible did it doesn't mean that it was right for them to do it. Yes, there is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, there's the story of Elijah calling down fire and consuming his enemies. But you don't know what spirit you're of. You don't know what spirit is guiding you, James and John. You don't know what's stirred up in you. Now let's come to 2 Kings chapter 2. Second Kings 2, we'll start in verse 1, and we're, we're going to skip a section because it take too long to read, read it all, and you're familiar with the story anyway. But let's start in verse 1, 2 Kings 2, 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven, that exact same phrase is what we just saw in the Gospels, right? When Jesus is about to be taken up, he goes to Jerusalem, right? Elijah is about to be taken up, and he sets out to this final place, this, this, this moment where, that's approaching him. He sets out to meet it. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So you can see what's happening. Elijah is, he knows he's going to his end. He knows, just as Jesus knows, that it's the end of the line for him. And Elijah says to Elisha, you might want to stay here. You don't want to see this. And Elisha much like Ruth does with Naomi, says, no, I'm going with you. Right? One of the things I like about this is you have to be discerning to know when to follow orders and when not to follow orders. Right? That the prophet is saying, don't do this. And Elisha knows better. Right? And this is true not only in relationship with authorities in your life, the men and women God establishes in your life to have care for you. It's also true of your relationship to God. Over and over in scripture, we see instances where God says something to someone and what he wants is for them to say no to it. Like when he says to Moses, I'm gonna destroy all of these people and start over with you. And Moses says, no, you're not because that's not who you are. That was the right response. Right? God set Moses up to test him. If I say I will destroy everyone and start over with you, is that what you really want? No, it isn't who you are, God, and it's not what I want. And so here Elijah is saying, don't, don't follow me. I, I think of Elijah as very cranky. He probably had a headache all the time. <laughs> and Elisha is just saying, no, sorry, I'm, I'm going with you. And this happens more than once. 
And then you get this company of prophets. You know, there are certain kinds of people that just irritate you. I mean, you know who those people are for you. For me, it's this kind of person that's irritating. So the company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? So here are prophets who've discerned in the spirit what's about to happen. And they come out to Elisha and like, do you know you're going to lose your father today? What's wrong with people? (laughs) I mean, what's striking about this is they're right. But just because you can see something doesn't mean you should say something about it. Just because you have a gift doesn't mean you should use it all the time. And these prophets see what's coming. And instead of, I'm sure they thought they were comforting Elisha. But most of the time when we think we're comforting people, we're not actually. We're flaunting our own giftedness. We're flaunting our own awareness of the situation. And so they are. And he says to them, yes, I know it. Keep silent. That's, that's King James polite speak for shut up and get out of my face. Right? Elijah said to Elisha, stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho near to Elisha and came near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, yes, I know. Keep your mouth shut. I don't want to hear it from you. Then Elijah said to him, stay here. The third time he's told him to stay. For the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. You can see, look at verse eight. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water, the the waters of the Jordan. He strikes the water. The water is parted to one side and to the other, which is exactly the story, right, of Israel's entry into the promised land. But here, he's not entering the promised land. He's leaving the promised land. He strikes the water and the waters part just as they had in the beginning of Israel's story, but now he's leaving the promised land to go into the wilderness. And the water parts and he and and Elisha go over on dry ground, which is, of course, the exact phrase that's used for what happens with Israel. Israel parts, the waters part, Israel passes through on dry ground. When they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. Let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses separated the two of them and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, He grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He picked up the mantle. Now notice, he doesn't see the mantle or pick up the mantle until after he's torn his clothes. That's what you call commitment. You'll get it. 
later. <laughs> and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. The mantle that had fallen from him. Notice Elijah does not give him the mantle. The mantle just falls. There's no moment in which the mantle is passed from one prophet to the other. The prophet just is taken and his mantle falls. And then Elisha picks it up. He struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other and Elisha went over. When the company of prophets who were at Jericho saw him at a distance, they declared, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Notice, they don't say he has his mantle. They say he has his spirit. And notice, when Elisha strikes the water, he doesn't fold the mantle. He just strikes the water with it. Now, what I had planned to talk about, that I'm going to talk about by saying I was going to talk about it and didn't, is the ways in which the mantle is related to the spirit in this text. And I think the mantle represents that which can be passed on from one generation to another. It can be given from fathers to sons, from mothers to daughters, from one generation of believers to the next generation of believers. So the mantle represents what is pass onable about our faith. So that's our doctrines, our liturgies, our songs, our sanctuaries, our, our ways of loving God and loving neighbor. We can pass that on. But what cannot be passed on is the spirit. That you can't just hand off. And even the mantle falls more than it's handed. Right? That Elijah is caught away and the mantle is swept away from him and falls and Elisha picks it up and Elisha begins to use it. And as I've already said, he doesn't use it exactly like Elijah did. He doesn't merely imitate Elijah. He does carry the mantle, but he doesn't fold it in the same way that Elijah did. He's not superstitious. He's just trying to live it. And here's the key, and this is what I was going to talk about, that I am talking about by saying I was going to talk about it, is that everything that we, am, we practice, all of our beliefs, all of our songs and liturgies, all of our buildings, all of that can be passed on to the next generation. It only matters if we know how to wear it. Right? It's not that Elisha needed a mantle. He needed Elijah's mantle. It's not that people need Christian beliefs or Christian songs or Christian preaching. They need that embodied in someone's life, in a particular person's life. I was talking to Zoe, my, my daughter, just this week, and I was telling her, we don't believe in Christianity. Christianity doesn't exist. Christianity doesn't matter. Christians we believe in. Christ we believe in. But not Christianity. Christianity is a set of ideas, a set of beliefs, a set of practices. What matters is the way that those beliefs and practices are lived, how they're worn. It's not what you say you believe, it's how you actually live that belief that matters, yes? And so what, what Elisha is waiting for is the mantle, not because he believes there's anything in the mantle, but because it's Elijah's mantle, right? And he, what matters most is not the mantle, but the spirit of Elijah in which the mantle can be born. 
in which the, the mantle can be used in ways that are faithful to the spirit of Elijah and to the, and to the spirit of God. So I think one of the things that's crucial when we think about liturgies and we think about liturgies like having weekly communion or liturgies like singing praise songs or liturgies like reading scripture and proclaiming the word, those things are good, but in and of themselves, they're just mantles. What matters is that they're embodied by people in ways that are filled with the spirit. That's what matters. They can be and they must be in order to be what God intended them to be. We don't just want a mantle. We want Elijah's mantle, and we want the spirit of Elijah to, to embody, to be embodied in the way that we carry the mantle. Because the, <laughs> thank, thank you. That's what I was going to talk about. Because the, <laughs> thank, thank you. Yeah, neither honey nor stings there, I guess. But, but the more I thought about this story of Elijah and Elisha, the more I was troubled about this notion of the spirit of Elijah. Because in scripture, the spirit of Elijah is a deeply conflicted spirit. There there are two realities that mark the spirit of Elijah. One of them is a spirit of violence and destruction. Where Elijah goes, the fire falls. Now in Pentecostal charismatic circles, we talk about the fire falling and we use that language kind of flippantly. But when Elijah's calling down fire from heaven, that's not a metaphor. When he's calling down fire from heaven to consume his enemies, that's not a metaphor. People are burning alive in this fire that he's called down. When James and John are outside that Samaritan city and telling Jesus that they've been rejected, they're not saying, Jesus, send fire down on them. They want to kill those people. They want to see the city burn. And they think it's righteous. And they think it's righteous because that is an aspect of the spirit of Elijah. But there's another aspect of the spirit of Elijah, which is reconciliation. Notice that Elijah and Elisha are bonded, their father and son. And when the last miracle Elijah performs is burning up his enemies. That's the last thing he does. And then he and Elisha have this journey we've just, we've just read about. At the end of Malachi, there's a prophecy. It says, before the day of the Lord, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I will send my servant Elijah and he will reconcile the hearts of the fathers to the hearts of the children. So what you have when you talk about the spirit of Elijah is you have a conflicted spirit. You have a spirit that on the one hand is violent towards its enemies and on the other hand is benevolent towards its own. Right? If, as long as you're in the family, Elijah will embrace you. But if you're outside the family, Elijah will consume you. If you're one of us, you're embraced, you're blessed. If you're one of them, you're at risk because we can call this down. And what's happening with James and John when they're with Jesus in that Samaritan city or outside of it is that they have made their choice. We gave you an opportunity to welcome us, to make us like you. You rejected us, and so that decides which aspect of the spirit of Elijah we're going to embody. Now, what I want to suggest, and this is controversial, but 
you're about to go into a Sabbath month, so you'll get a, all this, this time to reco- recuperate from this. Is that the whole history of Christianity is a history of that conflictedness. That Christianity, Christians, churches, people like you and me, two stories can be told about us. One is a story of the Crusades, where we slaughter the people that aren't like us. And another story is a story of hospitals and orphanages and missionaries, where we reach out to those who are not like us and embrace them. But unfortunately, most of our Christianities, most of our churches, most of our spiritualities have held those things together and never discerned the difference between them. So that sometimes, and I've seen this happen so many times, I can remember the people I grew up with. I would hear them talking about people overseas, people that they cared about, missions. And then I would hear them talking about dark-skinned people in their own cities. And one aspect of the spirit of Elijah was speaking when they were talking about Africans in Africa. And a whole different side of the spirit of Elijah was speaking when they were talking about Africans in the grocery store. I saw this manifested in ways in which we would pray for people to speak in tongues. And in our church services around the altars, every service, it was a failure if somebody didn't speak in tongues. Somebody had to do it just so we could go home. And there were those couple of people in the church, you know, you could always count on that they would do it just so we could go home. (laughs) And we loved that. We loved the sound of tongues, the sound of the spirit speaking through people. And then those same people would walk out of that church, go sit at a restaurant. And when their waitress couldn't speak plain English, they would gripe about it. I'm never coming back here ever again, am I? That's the spirit of Elijah. The spirit of Elijah is, if you're with me, I'm with you. If you're against me, I will use the gifts God has given me to destroy you. Just this week, there was an important, and I think significant in all kinds of ways, Christian leader who made his stance about what's taking place at our border. I'm not going to wade into all of that, obviously. But I, I nearly wrecked my car when I heard the last lines he said. And this is a direct quote. You can Google it if you want. Please don't. At least wait till you get home. <laughs> or wait till I'm gone. Google it on Wednesday. <laughs> these, these are exact words. We've been compassionate in the past, because that is our Christian nature. But now, that's a direct quote. We have been compassionate in the past because of our Christian nature, but now. And again, this isn't, you know, Steve at the local liquor store. This is one of the handful of most important Christian figures in our nation. And what he's saying, make no mistake about it, is we love Jesus and we will follow Jesus up to a point. We will let the Spirit of God work in us to a point. And when that point comes, we will manifest the Spirit of Elijah 
Not the spirit of reconciliation, not the spirit of embracing, but the spirit of rejection and the spirit of destruction. And all of us are going to have to decide, do we want to be filled with the spirit of Elijah in that conflictedness? Or do we want that stripped from us, sanctified out of us, so that what remains is the spirit of Jesus? Because what happens in Samaria, what do you think Elijah would have said if they rejected him? We know what he would have said. Because when Elijah was rejected, after he called fire down and you know, you know the story, he fled and hid. And he hid because he was hurt. Now hear me carefully. Elijah was a man called from God. Elijah was a man gifted by God, but Elijah was a man eaten up with his own ego. And that's why when things didn't go the way he wanted them to go, he didn't pray for his enemies and he didn't call on God. He hid himself. Because the whole story was really about him. And if you doubt me, think about the story about in 1 Kings 19, which is the story of the still small voice, as we call it which is probably better translated as the sound of silence. It's not a quiet voice. It's a voice that can't be heard at all. And if you remember, he's there and God asks him a question. Why are you here? Just like God asked Adam and Eve in the beginning, what are you doing? Hiding. And Elijah says, I'm here because I'm zealous for the righteousness of God. No, you're not, Elijah. No one who's truly righteous loves righteousness. People who are truly righteous love the unrighteous. Self-righteous people love righteousness. Godly people love the unrighteous. And Elijah, so this is his response. I'm here because of the zeal, the zeal I have for God, a zeal for your righteousness. And that's where the storm comes and the earthquake comes and the fire comes. And then that silent voice. And what happens after it is so heartbreaking. I mean, again, we preach these texts and we don't pay attention to what the texts are saying. We preach it as if, you know, that, that's a, a kind of, almost like we've imagined a Disney film version of Elijah in the mountain, in the cave. And it ends with him hearing the sweet, still voice of God and he goes home singing. That's not what happens. Elijah steps out of the cave and God asks him again, why are you here, Elijah? Now God's just put on display all of this power and then ended it by saying, this isn't about power at all. What do we know about earthquakes and firestorms and rocks rent to pieces? These are all the acts of judgment that we read about in our scripture. These are all the things that Elijah thinks it means when God acts. God is the God who destroys his enemies. Like he destroys Ahab and Jezebel. Like he destroys all the wicked of the earth. But then God speaks to him in a voice that makes no sound. A voice that does no violence. And asks him again. Now that I've shown you who I am. 
Now that I've shown you that I'm not in the earthquake and I'm not in the fire, I'm in this silence, this voice that does no violence. What now, Elijah? And Elijah says the exact same sentence. I'm here because of my zeal for the Lord and his righteousness. And there's not one in all of Israel who's as committed to this as I am. Because the heart of loving righteousness, not God, not your neighbor, but loving righteousness, is about preserving your own sense of power. And God's response to Elijah is, there's 7,000 who've not bowed their knees to Baal. What do you mean you're the only one? The Israel's rabbis, of course, knew these stories well and, and wrote about them often. And they paralleled the stories of Elijah and Moses in this way. You remember how the story of Moses begins when God first calls him? I'll talk about this some tomorrow night. But when God first calls Moses, you remember what he says about why he can't go? They will not believe me. They will not believe me. Do you remember how Moses' life ends? God saying to him, you did not believe me. And the rabbis say, anyone who begins by doubting the faith of the people will end in faithlessness. If you really think those people are the problem, not you, you are the problem by definition. Sting, yes. <laughs> right? If you really think the problem is out there, you are the problem. Moses, if you really think that their lack of faith in you is going to keep God from bringing them out of Egypt, do you think you're God? What does it matter if they believe you? This isn't about them believing you. This is about God acting for them. What a foolish thing to say they won't believe me. So what if they don't believe you? But if you care about people believing you, then there will come a point when you stop believing God. Because what you care about is that you're believed, not that God is believed. And the rabbis made this exact connection to Elijah and said that's exactly what's happening here at the cave. Is that he's disgusted with Israel because they're not as good as he is. They're not as faithful as he is. They don't know of God's righteousness like he does. And he's weary with all of their wickedness. And what he should have been doing is letting God expose the wickedness in him. Because the most wicked thing is condemning the neighbor God loves. The most wicked thing is for you to sit in judgment over the neighbor God has claimed as his child. So whatever their wickedness is, what name it, fill in the blank, it doesn't matter. No matter what their wickedness is, if you condemn them out of the spirit of, out of, any, out of, the spirit of Elijah, you are committing a greater wickedness. This is why Jesus says, it's gonna be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for you. Their wickedness is nothing compared to yours. Don't you see like what, what is truly wicked here? I'm almost done. Let me try to slather honey all left and right. <laughs> the 
The spirit of Jesus is unlike the spirit of Elijah in that the spirit of Jesus is not concerned for itself at all. It's a detail in the Elijah and Elisha story. It's a small detail, but it's a striking one. When Elijah calls Elisha, he throws the mantle over Elisha. And it says, and from that day, Elisha became his servant. When Elisha comes back in the spirit of Elijah, the very first thing that happens is the sons of the prophets fall on their faces and become his servants. Jesus became ours. Think about this. When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he didn't say, kneel, be my servant. He said, I'm your servant. Because the spirit of Jesus is a spirit of service to the stranger. It's the spirit of reconciling not our own to our own, but others to ourselves and ourselves to others. Jesus didn't come for the well, he came for the sick. He didn't come for the righteous, he came for the unrighteous. In due time, God died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God gave up his only son for us. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel in that when we are nothing, God comes to us and claims us as his own anyway. Not because of any good we have done, but because he is good. So people who have the spirit of Jesus are people who are not looking to be served, but to serve. And especially serve the people no one else will serve. That's what marks them, right? That what marks the people of God is their willingness to serve radically, even the people that everybody else in the society says does not, do not deserve service. That's what makes us who we are. If the spirit of Jesus is in us, those are the people we serve. This is what John says. If the love of God is in you and you see someone who's hungry, you will feed them. And if you don't feed them, the love of God is not in you. Because where the spirit of Christ is at work, you do for the least of these. When Jesus is telling his disciples about that last day, that last judgment, listen to this, jump to Matthew 25 really quickly. I have two more things to say, but I don't know how many things fit inside those two things, so we'll see. (laughs) Chapter 25, verse... I've got to find it. I'm old and I can barely read. Let's start in verse 34. This this is right after the dividing of the sheep and the goats. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, You that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was, and I want you to notice these these next few things. I was, I stopped and hesitated for a moment because I almost did to you what I did to my students, but you're not students, so I didn't do it. But let me show you what happened to them. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. I have a, a good friend, my pastor now, Dr. Robbie Waddell, is the one who pointed this out to me. And I, I tried it with my students and sure enough, this is exactly what happened. 
I asked them without looking at Matthew 25 to list the things that the righteous did that Jesus praised and the things that the unrighteous didn't do that Jesus condemned. They got five of the six. You want to guess which one they didn't get? Welcoming the stranger. Because you can visit your family in prison. If your kids need clothes, you'll give it to them. If your family's hungry, you'll feed them. But when you have to do that stuff for people you don't know and people that you fear, that's what makes the difference between the spirit of Elijah and the spirit of Jesus. And it's not an accident that my students knew five of the six. Because we can do all of those things in outreach ministries that don't require us to change the way we see the world. We can have a food bank and a clothing closet. We can take short-term mission trips. But until we actually eye-to-eye, face-to-face, encounter people who are different from us and love them the way God has loved us, the love of God is not working in us. All the rest of that is just protecting your own. All the rest of that is just natural instinct. It's what animals do for their own kind. The people of God love those who are not their own kind. But you can't get that. You can't see that until you see the heart of God for you. And that is, he's more interested in serving you than you could ever be in serving him. And until you're willing to let him serve you, you shouldn't serve anyone else. So two two examples of this. One is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is baptizing in the River Jordan. He's come in the spirit of Elijah. And Jesus comes down to the water and says, baptize me. What does John say? No, it's not right. It's not right. Hear what he's concerned about? He's concerned about being right. This is not the right thing to do. And Peter, right at the end of Jesus' life, a couple of nights before he dies, Jesus gets up, puts the towel around his waist, gets a basin full of water and sets it down at the feet of Peter to start to wash his feet. And what does Peter say? It's not right. It's not right. This is not the way the world is ordered. What does John want to do? He wants Jesus to baptize him. What does Peter want to do? He wants to wash Jesus' feet. They can't can't deal with the ways in which Jesus is turning the world upside down on them. The ways in which Jesus is engaging them in ways that break the rules of engagement. But here's what's so, so, so crucial. The very next thing that happens in both Peter's life and in John the Baptist's life is that they doubt Jesus. The next time we see John the Baptist... Where is he? He's in prison. And what is he saying? Are you really the one? Or should we look for another? And when we see Peter, he's in the courtyard saying, I never heard of this man. Because if you can't see God as he is, the God who wants to serve you, precisely when you don't deserve it, then you won't be able to hold to faith. Because that's the God we live with. The God who actually is, is not a God who's come to make the right right and the wrong wrong. 
He's not come to separate the sheep from the goats on the basis of the sheep being better than the goats. He's come to establish his character in us, his life in us. And that is a life of compassion and gentleness and meekness. Listen to it again in Galatians 5. We come back to where we, where we begin. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Not just for your own. That's not love. Remember what Jesus said? If you love those who love you, everyone does that. It's not the love of God if you love people who... I should stop. You get the point. Like if, if you love people that already love you, people that you find lovable, that's not the love of God. That's just animal instinct in you. If you love those who are unlovable and who do not love you in return, that is the love of God in you. Love, joy. Again, not joy because things are going well. Not joy because your wife bought you the watch you've been lusting after for years, right? Like, that's, that's not joy. Joy is in the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil because you know, even though the night is dark, the morning's coming, right? It, joy of the Lord isn't circumstantial. Peace, same truth. Patience, kindness, generosity, and not just to people you want to be generous to. Generous to strangers, generous to enemies. These are the marks. These are the marks of the Spirit of Christ. So I'm going to end with this and then we're going to come to the table. Those who are going to serve, if you'll go ahead and, and get ready. Listen, I know I've, I've said a lot today and a lot of it has, I'm sure, upset a lot of people. I, I, don't, I don't want that. I, I do want you to hear what I think is the call of the Spirit, which is it's time for us to be filled with the Spirit of Christ and not just any spirit, not just a powerful spirit, not just a fiery spirit, not just a spirit that can do wonders, but a spirit that is a spirit of compassion and meekness and gentleness and patience. And that this is actually the way in which evil is destroyed. It's not that God is soft on sin. It's not that God doesn't care about unrighteousness. It's that he loves the unrighteous enough to save them from their unrighteousness. And what separates the sheep from the goats is not that the sheep are better. It's that the sheep love the goats and the goats don't love the sheep. That's the difference. You know that old problem people will say, I know Christians who aren't very good and I know a lot of non-Christians who are who are really good people. That's because being a good person is just beside the point. This isn't about being good. The rich young ruler was good and he walked away from Jesus because he was good. Precisely because he was moral, he wanted nothing to do with holiness. Precisely because he had figured out how to be right, he didn't want to have to worry about those who had gotten it wrong. 
and all God cares about are the ones who've gotten it wrong. This is a shepherd who leaves the one sheep in the fold and goes and fi- goes, leaves the 99 and go finds, goes to find the one. The point of that parable is not that there are 99 just sheep. It's that there are no just sheep. They're just 99 who think they are. And one who knows enough to cry. That, that's the difference. That's the difference. I was in a conversation with, with someone just this week. I, I'm, I'm taking too long. I just want to make sure you hear my heart and you don't, that the stings don't leave you swollen and itchy the rest of the week. Um, yeah, I don't want allergic reactions. Dr. Jade and Dr. Jonathan, Dr. Christie, Dr. Bonnie will be dealing with that all week. Extra office hours. No, no, no. I just, I want you to hear my heart. My heart is God is at work in the world. God is at work in you. And God is at work in those people that you haven't noticed yet. And God is at work in those people you've noticed only to fear. And what the church needs to be, what Antioch needs to be, is a people filled up with the spirit of Christ, ready to carry the mantle in ways that don't just lead to destruction. That we, if we're going to call fire down, we're going to call fire down on ourselves, not on others. Right? This is, this is what Paul says. I would be accursed if my people could be saved. Right? This, this is the heart of God. The heart of God for you and for everyone is for him to care for you. And if God is at work in you, then your instinct when you see the ungodly should be to wash their feet. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the rest you're about to give us. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in Antioch, the pastors, the community leaders, the elders, that they will discern what you're saying to them. God, in whatever ways that needs to be filtered from what I said, let it be. God, I, I, this isn't about me. This is about your work in this community and about calling them to be filled up with the spirit of Christ. Let this be a community marked by compassion and mercy and generosity and patience, especially for those who don't deserve it. And Lord, this is what we are celebrating when we come to this table. Sitting around that table that night that you first gave this meal, there was nothing but betrayers. The first time you served this meal, Judas was there, Peter was there, John was there. Every one of them ran away from you. Not just Judas betrayed you, every one of them betrayed you. And the last meal you had on this earth, you shared with people you knew were going to betray you. And we're people who have betrayed you. I've betrayed you over and over and over again. And I don't want to. I wish I'd never had done it and I don't want to do it again, but I will in the future betray you. But this isn't about me. This is about the fact that you still keep inviting these betrayers back to the table. Week after week after week, we betray you and you say, come and eat. This is my body. 
this is my blood. Antioch, will you stand with me? God, make this bread and this cup the body and blood of Christ for us. And as we feast on it this morning, let us feast on you. Let your spirit come alive in us. And as we leave today, let us leave not in the spirit of Elijah, a spirit conflicted because it can't see the stranger as your child, but the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of compassion and mercy and long-suffering. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Come and receive the table of the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.